Well, good morning and welcome to the Two Jacks coming to you. I think it's episode 50. I, I, Jack, Joel has corrected me. We put the bat up a run early last week, but this is, in fact, episode 50 to, to, uh, of our long-running cast. We've actually done many more episodes than that, but this is episode 50 where we put local, that is Australian domestic matters, alongside world matters. And so you may raise the bat once again, Jack. Did the umpire call one short? Yeah, I think we must have just run one short. I have been known to do that in my career. Mm. Yeah, so joining joining me as usual, of course, listeners, is uh, Hong Kong Jack all the way in Hong Kong. We've got uh, a little bit of breaking news. To do. That is a story that we've been following fairly closely on this podcast. Scooped by the Australian, of course, the brilliant John Ferguson. And and that is that Erin Patterson, the woman who was believed to have prepared a meal that led to the poisoning deaths of three people, serious illness to another, has been arrested. She is yet to be charged and is in custody at one saggy police station. Very interesting story unfolding there. We don't know what if anything, she'll be charged. We do know that she's legally represented and under, under those circumstances, as a lawyer, Jack, what's the best approach? No comment? She won't say a word. Yeah, one would expect that she'd probably be charged within a day or so, late today or tomorrow. Yes, and we'll keep the listeners updated on all of that as it unfolds. Really uh, an enormous story, probably one of the biggest stories of the year, in, at least in terms of that sort of true crime genre. But we're moving on now to matters political and geopolitical. We did see the, what are we talking about? I think it's five of the last six prime ministers. That doesn't sound enough, really, because the last 10 years or so, they're going to use by date of about six months. But they issued a statement in support of Israel in its in its battle in Gaza. But there was one omission, Jack, and that was Paul Keating, who refused to sign. Yes, I, I, I'm told it was that the idea came from Josh Frydenberg, and but then it was written by Malcolm Turnbull. And, I, and I'm just thinking about the writing progress would have been pretty terrible because Turnbull and Rudd in particular would want to be changing things and rearranging things. Yeah, a lot of redrafting. Yeah. But, of course, Paul Keating said, perhaps mistakenly, that that the letter that was signed by the previous Prime Ministers, all but him, living Prime Ministers, that is, mm. was prepared by the Zionist Foundation, Jack. Well, it could have been. I, I have no idea. The gossip. Well, that's what he said. Yeah. And Turnbull came out in, on Twitter and said, I, basically, this was written by us, not by anybody yeah. else. Yeah, I, I doubt that Howard Abbott, Turnbull and Rudd would just sign on to something that somebody else had written. I would think that they would have some input into it. As I say, Rudd and Turnbull in particular would have plenty of input. Yeah. That would be a competition uh, to see who thought they were the smartest man in the room. Well, if we look at Twitter as a barometer of Australian society, which would be a wrong thing to do, we would say that Paul Keating emerged from this triumphant. But look, I don't see it as a bad thing that he has opposed this. He's not wanted to get involved in the writing of this letter. What do you think his justification is, Jack? I read it and I still couldn't work it out. Look, I think it's perfectly <laughs> okay for him to have his own view on this and take Absolutely all of them right. have their own view. That might have mm. no problem at all. What we have here, it, the letter says, there is no more tenaciously evil race hatred than anti-Semitism. This is the letter 
written by the former Prime Ministers, with the exception of Keating. It says, Our Australian Jewish community, directly affected by the terrible crimes of Hamas, not only has to endure the loss and suffering of their families in Israel, but now sees these events being used by some to spread ancient hatreds which have inflicted so much suffering on the Jewish people for thousands of years. I just wanted to have a look at some of this stuff, Jack, because in report in The Australian today, and you won't have this in front of you, but there was a report of a, a speech delivered by a member of the High Court, the Israeli High Court, that is, that I think is one of the best definitions of anti-Semitism I've come across. The speech was made by Israeli High Court Judge Jane Jagot, uh, and she, where she spoke about the horrific impacts of anti-Semitism and saying hate speech towards Jews was highly prevalent today, which we know to be true, fueled by conspiracy theories from the COVID-19 pandemic and enforced by white supremacists. And here's the definition. Singling out or excluding a Jewish person because of disagreement with the policies of Israel involves the anti-Semitic fallacy that Jews are an indivisible and non-individual whole that can be somehow equated with and held collectively responsible for every action of Israel. Don't you like that? Yeah, it's okay. I don't like calling it anti-Semitism at all. I just call it Jew hatred. Well, yeah, we can we can call it we can battle over terms, but anti-Semitism is the accepted term. Well, um, partly because who knows what who knows who are the Semitic people? They probably almost certainly include the Arabs. So it's a funny definition, really. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just like that because we are seeing, regardless of your views of what's going on in Gaza, regardless of people's views about what's going on in Gaza, uh, we are seeing this sort of blanket blame and accusation directed at Jews. We'll get to some of the I would be more precise than stuff. More precise than that. I would say that we're seeing more than the usual amount of anti-Semitism, if you want to call it that. I suppose that's right if we're talking about quantum, but we're never, when we, when we look at the conditional release program and, and look at fringe politics in this country and various movements, the freedom movement, the anti-vaccination movement, and we're deeper into those groups in particular, and they've been up and about now through the pandemic, you, you scratch away and there is this really raw anti-Semitism behind it that, What's different with this situation is that we're not just seeing that usual anti-Semitism on the right, on the fringe right, we're seeing anti-Semitism in, on the left, on the fairly mainstream left, I've got to say. I've been watching on Twitter a lot of the progressive people I follow, the progressive Jewish people I follow, and they're really struggling to come to terms with the fact that their friends and colleagues are now saying things that are, in my view, clearly anti-Semitic. That's very uncomfortable. For There's a very good Melbourne lawyer who I knew slightly back in the day, and he's very discomforted by this because I, I suspect he's just waiting to find out that some of his staff or his partners are popping along to the protests and, and chanting free Palestine from the river to the sea. And that's going to take a lot of nuance for him to live with. Yes, I, I had the opportunity to speak with a with a Jewish a man now living, in, now living in Sydney last week who is actually pro-Palestinian. He was raised as an Orthodox Jew. He says, I, I asked him specifically what he thought of that slogan 
and I think it's used on both sides from the river to the sea, and it, there, there is a view that basically means wiping out Israel. There is no other, no other interpretation that makes any sense. Yeah, I know there have been, there've been some other sort of rationalisations associated with it. He wasn't concerned with it, but that's his particular view. He also made the point, and this was recorded, and the, uh, the interview is available uh, through the conditional release podcast downloads, that he believed that Israel itself was a mistake and it's just not got any better since. But that's a personal view. And that, yeah, again, which, stands which, which is in- this business of saying all Jews believe this, mm. all Jews all Jews live under the same sort of moral, intellectual and political umbrella. Any Anybody who thinks that doesn't know many Jews, they're a fabulously disputatious lot on any matter of Jewish theology yeah, or exactly. politics, yeah. if you put five of them in the room, you'll get at least seven opinions. Well, again, I saw some polling today, a fairly limited poll, 600 respondents, and it was conducted in Israel and reported in the Times of Israel where and, and conducted, I think, a week after the Hamas attacks. And it shows Benjamin Netanyahu, Bibi, to be in considerable trouble politically if those figures are right. As I say, 600 people is a, a pretty limited poll, but... It, it takes about seats off of him, off the Likud party, and uh, and a number of the parties that he's in coalition with. There are, are two, also- two things about that. Uh, the contracts, the reading I've done and the contracts I've got who are speaking to people in Israel, Israel's absolutely united to get this job done, but there will be a reckoning at the end of the process for the people who are in charge because there were intelligence and preparations preparation failures and they will pay a political price for that. And probably Netanyahu is on the top of that list. But, in yeah. the mean, but that doesn't mean that there's going to be any change of government in the meantime. There won't be because they are all shoulders to the wheel, get this job done. But at the end of it, there will be a reckoning and he will lose. Yeah, well, there's a piece of saying that the US administration is of the view that Bibi's political career could fall over at any time. So that's during the invasion, during the action in Gaza. I think that's Um, unlikely. Yeah, okay. Look, we will stick with Israel and Gaza and some of the news that's coming, that's been come out from there in the last couple of days. We note that, that the southern Gaza border has been opened to allow uh, seriously injured people to be treated uh, through and travel through the Sinai and in, and in Egypt. I think that's a very positive thing. And, and also, uh, again, there was more uproar, but uh, Israel said yesterday that it hit a Hamas command and, and tunnel network in northern Gaza, which was sitting underneath a Palestinian refugee camp. Israel said, this was in the Australian, it killed dozens of militants, including a commander who it said led the October 7 attacks in Israel. Hamas said hundreds were dead or wounded, but didn't say how many were militants, while hospital officials in Gaza reported receiving scores of dead bodies. There was an account, this was published in the BBC, Jack, the Medicine Sans Frontieres, MSF, has tweeted a brief account of one of its nurses providing emergency care at the Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. She said young children arrived at the hospital with deep wounds and severe burns. They came without their families. Many were screaming and asking for their parents. I stayed with them until we could find a place as the hospital was full with patients. MSF said it was horrified by the uh, Jabalia 
airstrike and condemned the latest episode of senseless violence while calling for a ceasefire. Enough is enough, MSF said. Israel's ground war against Hamas in Gaza appears to have begun. Well, it has really begun. They've, they've rolled tanks in there and one presumes special squads are, are roaming through the place. We've seen reports of the IDF using dogs, sniffer dogs, to locate tunnel networks and uh, and then using robots going into these tunnel networks to to cause some damage in there is there a real is there a prospect that this ground war could lead to a sort of uh, quagmire jack i think that is a chance and i'm sure that the israeli war candidate are sitting there weighing up that prospect yeah benjamin netanyahu famously in his address to the israeli people said this is our second war of independence and that we are only at the beginning what point do we, what point do we get to when we when we see that when we see that basically the israelis or the idf has gone has gone too far. There are reports of the deaths of confirmed deaths, but literally thousands of children. And that really does stir up uh, a strong reaction against the Israeli government. Looking at this from the Israeli, if you're sitting around the Israeli war cabinet, what do they see? Uh, they see this as a war for their existence. And that means they will fight. Um, and, um, and they're entitled to. Yeah. And Golda Meir set this out very clearly a long time ago when she was Prime Minister. She said, people will pity us if we're all killed and Israel is destroyed and they'll dislike us if we fight and win. And I'm prepared to be disliked. And that's exactly the, the Israeli attitude. They will take the reputational damage they will suffer internationally and say, that's just a price we're prepared to pay to keep our security intact. What would be the objective then? To degrade Hamas to a, a degree that it is no longer a threat or no longer an immediate threat. And again, I look at this and think, well, how, if you take out various Hamas commanders and those involved on the, on the strike on October, if you take those things out, if you take those individuals, where do you go from there? I, I just see, once again, this sort of falling into sort of quagmire where innocent civilians are basically collateral damage. It's going to face the, the citizens of Gaza with a choice whether they want to shackle themselves to losers and barbarians or they, whether they want to make a better choice. Interestingly, the last few days there have been looting at UN supply depots because the UN provides the food. Hamas takes the view that they can spend all the money that's given to Gaza on fighting a war with Israel. Yeah, that's it, right. Because mm. it believes that 75% of the Gazans are in fact refugees, so they're not their responsibility. They are the responsibility of the UN to feed and to educate, etc., etc. right? So the UN yeah. covers all that. Hamas so, is a political organisation, first and foremost. It, it is the it, government it of Hamas. health department. Yeah. But essentially, its business is trading in rockets and missiles from Iran and other places. Um, and neglecting the people that they are supposed to be looking after. Yeah. A quick reminder to our yeah. listeners, there hasn't been an election in Gaza for now 17 years. Yeah. There was a, a skirmish at one of the UN depots yesterday when some Gazan soldiers, some Hamas soldiers went to collect what they thought was their fair share and they were driven away by locals, by Gazans. Um, Hamas might be going to find out over the next week or two that, as we know, hungry people are angry people. Yes, indeed. 
And look, it's just a reminder when we go back to that 2006 election that Hamas got 44% of the vote. Now, it, it got the majority of seats in the in the Palestinian parliament, the Palestinian Authority parliament, which extends into the West Bank, but only 44% of the vote, Jack. So uh, there's but, another but, 56% out there, presumably, don't want Hamas or are but, opposed to Hamas. Uh, and But then what they did was to kill off the representatives of the Palestinian Authority in Gaza, and yeah, thousands of them, take power. And hold power. And, yes. and rumours of elections have been quickly dismissed, uh, not an election since. So is that a, a possibility that the, the Palestinians will turn on Hamas? That, that's one of the possibilities. Look, there are going to be some difficult choices to be made. If you were sitting in the war cabinet, Israeli war cabinet, and they came to you and said, look, we've got really good intelligence that a Hamas leader, one of the architects of the October 7 uh, atrocities, is in a bunker. Unfortunately, the bunker's underneath a one of the refu- one of the UN refugees. What do you do? Do you drop the bomb or not? That's a difficult choice to make. That's the sort of choice they're going to be making sitting around that table in the Israeli war camp. Well, yes, but I'd also caution I would say Israel plans bombing attacks with almost like they go to the lawyers first. Yeah. And so let's have a look at this and let's look at this morally, ethically, legally. Whereas Hamas and Islamic Jihad, they're just firing, in, firing indiscriminately at civilian population. The, the Israelis can target their rockets. The, the Islamic Jihad, as we found with the hospital, are not very good at targeting their, uh, their rockets. They'll land short, all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, and there's a history of this. So mm. when we looked at the hospital in southern Gaza there, it's an Anglican hospital, and, and the early reports were 500 dead, the hospital destroyed. We still are yet to get a, uh, a, a conf- casualty toll from that strike. And the hospital uh, still there. And the hospital remains standing. It was said yeah. to be basically destroyed. And all the available evidence, look, you said it last week, and I think that's probably right, that we'll probably never know who was responsible for it. We can look at the OSINT boys and, and uh, boys and girls who are very clever at determining things based on locations and uh, that's that sort of internet-based or satellite-based um, interpretation or analysis. But overall, it would seem more likely than not that Islamic Jihad were responsible for that bombing, but we'll probably never know. In the absence of a detailed investigation undertaken by presumably someone connected to the UN, Jack. But well, that, well, that wouldn't be a reliable investigation because the UN all in for... The UN are not a good faith player. Yeah, there's all sorts of problems with that happening, but uh, the, the UN, for that matter, are, are, are saying that they are conducting uh, war crimes investigations on both sides, which is a little bit difficult to understand given that I mean, you can't have investigators on the ground for a start. So in the fog of war, you're probably never going to know with great certainty who's responsible for what. But overall, and certainly my view, is that Israel is more targeted in its strikes into Gaza than Hamas is in Israel. And its strikes against an Islamic Jihad, for that matter, was indiscriminate rocket fire. Uh, the UN Human Rights Council has a position on this, unsurprisingly. But if you run your, your finger down the, the column of who is the members of the UN Human Rights mm. Council, you would wonder why it exists. Yeah. Well, the UN 
is a reflection of the world, isn't it? And, and it is a walking, talking reflection of geopolitics around the world where basically all nations are represented, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, uh, and often the ugly come to the fore in places like the Human Rights Commission. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an anti-UN person. So there, are, there are a lot of people who think it should be abolished. It's just a reflection of the world. Yes, and um, I, I think it for, performs a useful role. We all, the good, the bad and the indifferent, need somewhere to talk to our friends and our enemies, and the UN does that. It's when it ventures into other things and starts pontificating and trying to be a moral force that it's just a joke. Right. Okay, well, I'm just going to look at some reactions around the world to, to the attacks the uh, retaliatory attacks into Gaza. and uh, The reactions around the world started before the retaliatory attacks started, well, I can tell. Well, yeah, look, yes, but let's look at, for example, Dagestan, where its, it's airport was overwhelmed and a mob running around looking for Jews to persecute, which sounded very, very ugly, and Putin was, was forced into saying, oh, no, it's all under control now. But that sounded extremely ugly. Yeah, been, the, the video of that looked awful. Like was, oh, just all a lynch mob. Really. It was a lynch mob. Yeah, absolutely. In London, there've been protests all around the world. There were huge protests against Israel. About a hundred thousand people in London. And again, we got no problem with anyone protesting, and even people running around chanting. Not just here. I saw this in, in New York. Jack yeah. uh, clip there. Intifada everywhere which is you've got to be careful what you wish for there, I suggest. The Czech Republic is a bit of a standout, Jack. The the non-Russian Eastern Europe generally is. Yeah, and this comes from the Czech Defence Minister, Jana Chen. She said, one must not stand silent in the face of a second Holocaust. And she said, she called on her country to withdraw from the United Nations to protest its failure to condemn Hamas October at October 7 attack on Israel. Australia, of course, refrained, sorry, abstained from voting in that same motion, Jack. Yeah, we did. I think uh, there were about 15 or 20 abstentions and a few votes against, yeah. Yeah. I I saw saw Peter Dutton come forward and said we we should have voted with the Americans and with the Israelis. And with the United Um, Kingdom, I think, voted against as well. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I think so too. And I, I really, I know Peter Dutton, he's a political animal and he will always go for the throat whenever he's got the opportunity. But I would suggest that uh, he should uh, back away a fair bit. Otherwise, people might remember some of the things he said when he was Home Affairs Minister. Oh, they will anyway. I don't think it matters a huge difference whether we abstained or voted against as long as we didn't, we didn't vote for it. Yeah, I just want to wrap up what the Czech Defence Minister said. The Holocaust is back. And we must not be silent again. New York, I did see some footage there. I follow a number of Jews in New York who were a little bit startled to see people walking around the streets there screaming uh, screaming for an intifada. <laughs> but look, again... And we- te- tearing down, uh, what's very popular in New York and London at the moment, is tearing down the posters of the hostages. I saw someone, well, uh, a New Yorker, doing just that. And he was, I don't know if you saw the clip, but he was approached by, um, well, they were just New Yorkers as well who were most upset that this would happen. And uh, and this rather rough-looking fellow said, look, mate, well, basically, in very New Yorker, since he wasn't using mate, he said, look, this is is free speech and you will not tear these things down. And there was a, a very apologetic New Yorker there with a couple of a couple of posters that he'd ripped down off lampposts. Yeah, the, the chap concerned I saw an interview with is a building worker from from he Queens. Looked, 
a building worker from Queens of Italian-American descent, and he sounded exactly like that. It was quite amusing, really. You know, a very New York presentation. Right. Well, I just wanted to, while we talk about uh, Peter Dutton, Jack, there's a slightly related issue, and that is what is to be done about Abdul Ben Bricker, who's probably arguably our most dangerous terrorist. He was he spent more than 18 years behind bars for plotting attacks on Australian landmarks, including the AFL Grand Final at the MCG. He's been uh, cooling his host Supermax uh, for... This is the chap from the northern suburbs of Melbourne, isn't it? That's right, yeah. yeah. And under, under the former government's laws, he had, with uh, Mr Dutton at, at the helm, he had his citizenship revoked his Australian citizenship revoked. He was born, I believe, in Morocco, and that would mean he would be expelled to Morocco. But that verdict, that ministerial determination that his citizenship be stripped of him, and and took that to the High Court where he won, Jack. Yeah, uh, the courts are very reluctant to allow citizenship to be taken away from people. Well, they, there's a long history they were, they, of that. They were actually, I, mean, I, think, I think there was a, a minority judgment as well from the full bench, but there was a view that ministers should not be courts, should mm. not be subject to courts. And there was also a, a section about double penalty, that he has served 18 years in jail and then will be stripped of his citizenship, which has happened quite significantly. It's a widespread thing across the board. Home affairs were uh, cancelling citizenship left, right and centre, we might remember that it was a point of difference between the Australian and New Zealand governments. Although that tended to be not so much cancelling citizenships as deporting oh, people to New Zealand who'd never in fact held Australian citizenship. Yeah, that's true. Who had arrived in Australia, visaless of course. They had never actually taken the next step and become citizens. Then they'd been convicted of offences serious enough to require deportation and the government. Unfair, Jack. That it, well, that of course it, lacked, it did. Yeah. It lacked a, lot of, lacked a lot of process. We might remember a prominent fell football and his father father was dispatched to New Zealand. I think he'd been living in the country for a significant period of time. Most of, his life, he, most of his life, I believe. Yeah, and while he had while he had associations with outlaw motorcycle gangs, he had no criminal convictions. So it just, it just seemed to be a bit rough. Anyway, all of, well, that's, a, as you say, that is quite separate from stripping of citizenship, citizenship. Yeah. And, and sending them off. So now... The current government has to deal with this and come up with a better form of legislation, doesn't it? It's going to be a tricky one. It's something that comes up all around the world is how much tolerance do you give the intolerant? It's a good point. And, and there isn't what you don't want to do is get subject to a successful challenge again. You um, want to get it right. And to be honest, in my view, there's really never an easy answer to it. So there is a bigger problem here, and, and Ben Bricker is just a part of it, that, that around this time where we did have extremism, plotting terrorist actions in Australia, yep. and those people were brought before the courts, many cases convicted, sent off to prison for 10, 12, in the case of Ben Bricker, 18 years, probably at the very pointy end of sentencing. And now a lot of them are due to be released, Jack. Yeah, the thing about that is when you jail them, you think the problem's solved, but it very rarely is. And besides banging these people up in, uh, I think they're in Goulburn Supermax, aren't they? Um, yeah, nice. And, and, and they tend to be banged in you know, the same units together. So there is zero chance of rehabilitation, if you like. Well, they don't have you know, any sort of, there's not a lot of prisoner interaction in Supermax, and that's mm. one of the things you are isolated. But the the thing I just wanted to point out is that, as you say, these people will be released. There are 
the AFP can apply and get supervision orders, although I don't think yep. they even have to apply in the first instance. They can just obtain supervision orders. But there is this major problem that we've that we've got of fairly dangerous types. We, we talk about deprecated and complex, but it's the first thing to say is if you don't want to do programming, if you are convicted of terrorist offences in this country and you don't want to undergo deprecated, there's... The state cannot force you to, to do that. How possibly the ACT? Because the Greens think we should be told what to think, but nobody else in the country agrees with that. Oh, you've been following the, the, the ACT. Uh, flailing in the Australian at the moment, particularly out of Harvard Road. I'm a bit of a libertarian about... I sort of found it a bit hard when they said, well, you, you get more for a traffic fine, a speeding fine, than you do for a possession of ice. And it's almost got yeah. a skull and crossbones uh, well, around Well, yeah, but it does amuse me that you face a worse penalty for trafficking. It's like the old joke about the injecting room... For, for traffic offences rather yeah. than trafficking. Yeah. yeah, like the old joke about the injecting room, in the heroin injecting room in King's Cross, that you can put anything you like up your arm, but because it's a government property, you can't fire up a rocket. Well, yeah, that's... That's what happens. And it has, I mean, I understand that when you prohibit something, there will be a consequence. Yeah. And so now I think they, the, the prisoners blow up microwaves trying to create a sort of fake cigarette. Mm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just really dumb. It, it really is just yeah, stupid. Be handing yeah. out the be- bits and hedges, I reckon. Yeah, Abdul Ben Bricker, he's a convicted terrorist, but we don't want him smoking. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. Look, it's a really interesting one to follow. Is this, there are. Some fairly dangerous people who are on their way out. Yeah. Now, some of them may be rehabilitated. Some of them, and in the case of Ben Brooker, probably aren't and are going to be troublemakers when they get out. I guess my view of that is that we've built a nice, big, spanking new building for ASIO in Canberra. They're going to have to earn the money. Yeah, well, the AFP will be doing most of the surveillance yeah. and supervision work. The misinformation bill, Jack, we just want to touch on this. I wrote about it last Friday. Yeah, I, uh, I read your piece on the in the paper on Friday and I thought someone must have hacked your account. Look, I hate disinformation because you know how damaging it is, but I've taken the view that governments can't do anything. And therefore, we, we did have a Barney about this about uh, six months oh, ago. Look, disinformation is fucking terrible. And again, excuse me, and, and then again, and this sort of stuff, the sort of disinfo that comes about, well, and I, I cited the example of Robert Kennedy Jr., yeah. who was deliberately anti-Semitic. I, I've taken that view that some of this stuff is extremely harmful and you have to know, you have to accept that first. So my first instinct is stop it. How do we stop it? On reflection... I, I don't think this is a role for government. What it is is a role for media and, and more broadly society that we have to identify this stuff, drag it out of the shadows where it exists and where it is really harmful and point out why, not just that it's false, but why it's deliberately damaging, why this it's is, a deliberate is, form of propaganda this, dispersal. The, the solution to misinformation is more information. Well, yeah, that's pretty glib, though, because you actually you actually really do need to do concerted work yeah. on this. The Conditional Release Program does a fair bit of it, and our friends at Tin Four Tales do a lot more of that sort of work, where they identify the sort of the mischief makers and the nonsense that they spread. And people, given social media and the, and the broad sweep of the internet and so forth, and people's disaffection with government, they can find themselves in very dark places very quickly. And that's really annoying. And you would like to see a nice, clean system where that didn't happen. But unfortunately, the response is eternal vigilance. 
and reporting, and that's where it belongs. And um, robust, in media. robust debate. A lot of this stuff's sort of borderline what's information and what's opinion, and the best response to that is let's have lots of robust debate. Yeah, look, it's okay. Yeah, that's a response. But how do we deal with someone who, the cliched example is, cries fire in a, in a crowded theatre? But more often than not, let's say, spreads misinformation around vaccination, uh, childhood vaccination. We've actually seen a rather disturbing decline by about 7% in childhood vaccinations in this country, driven by these uh, disinformation spreaders. So how do you respond to that? You respond to that with facts and rationality and, yep. and then look at their backgrounds. You do the whole journalist thing. And, um, and, pres- and presumably someone goes up to Byron Bay and places like that and makes funds of the influencers who are, who are doing the most damage with this. Yeah, I just cannot see how government or a government agency, a quasi-government agency like the Australian Media and Communications Authority can be beefed up to deal with this stuff. I just don't see how that will work. First off, it can't be immediate. It will be subject to a bureaucratic process, so it will take months for them to make a finding and mm. prepare a report and list their so, actions. So, so, so what are they going to do? They're no, say, it is. They're, they're going to say, Jack, that thing that you read uh, 11 months ago wasn't right. And you're going to go, what was it? You know, you've forgotten <laughs> what it was. No, no. So that's why government moves slowly. And I did use the Mark Twain comment in it that the lie goes halfway around the world while the truth's still tying its shoelaces. And yeah. and that that is essentially it. Media failures, I can. there are just so many of them. The one that I get back to, and it's linked to the Me Too movement and those sorts of things, is this Jimmy Savile. How anyone in media could have looked at Savile and thought, Oh, he looks hunky-dory. We'll, we'll, we'll let him go. And so basically went to the grave unpunished for his many crimes. Over a 1,000 victims, girls, boys. They're dead. He was a necrophiliac as well. And that is a failure, not just of media, but it is a broader failure, I guess you would say, the UK or the Brits themselves to, to properly investigate people. Media first, but the nation had put this guy on a pedestal. And, and once there's a documentary that's been running around there for a little while, in fact, over a year, but once he got his knighthood, courtesy of Margaret Thatcher, once he got his knighthood, he knew then, no one's going to touch me now. Hmm. No one's going to come at me. I'm too powerful. I correspond with Prince Charles, now King Charles. I have powerful friends everywhere, including in the poor. So hmm. it really is a message to us on disinfo and misinfo to journalists, myself included, Get your act together. This is how you deal with it. You identify it, you identify those people who are spreading it, and you show their motives. And that's basically all we can do. Yeah, that's got to be robust. Uh, it's got to be right across the board. It's, there should be no sacred cows in that regard, and, and that's good journalism. Anyway, it, it was always struck me that the government was the worst possible people to be doing this. Only because, yeah, but for, for the right, not only, because for the whole host of reasons, but that we've identified, not least of all, governments don't move very quickly, but also because it, it does make governments at least appear to be prohibiting freedom of expression. Uh, that's never a good look. It's, that's never a good look. It's the same sort of thing that, that, that Kevin Rudd, Malcolm Turnbull push for a royal commission into the into uh, what they call the Murdoch Empire News Corporation, and 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 it's just like you, this is something that you shouldn't be even thinking about going anywhere near. Otherwise, we will have a problem with free with a free press in this country. Yeah, just because you don't like stuff 
doesn't mean you've got to, doesn't mean people are going to be bundled off into divvy vans and, and businesses destroyed. There are a lot of people on Twitter who think that only information that they only information and opinion that they approve of ought to be allowed to be published. It's, it's bigger than Twitter. I mean, we see it expressed in Twitter, yeah, but, but, but it is exciting. I mean, but there's a whole lot of people, some of them quite prominent, who seem to believe that only opinion and, and information that they approve of should be allowed to be published. Nothing else should be allowed to be published. Yes, absolutely right. Okay, Jack, working from home. Sorry, you dis- sorry to disappoint your listeners. We're actually agreeing on something here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, working from home. Jack, what do you got against it? You do it, I do it. What's your problem? Uh, no, I, can, I don't have anything particular against it. I just think it's an interesting social phenomenon as to how long it's going to last. Uh, I think there are some drawbacks with it. I, I can certainly go back to some of the jobs that I've had where you, you learn from the fact that you are there with people when they're doing stuff, that you just can't do it, that you, that you can never replicate that learning process with remote work, working in my view. Well, there are Zoom calls. There's that sort of artificiality of of the uh, of the meeting, the person to person or person to persons meetings and things like that. Hasn't technology largely solved all these problems, Jack? No, I don't think you can ever learn. I, I could never have learnt to to negotiate settlements and deal with clients in the way that I did if I had to do that remotely. Couldn't not. I learnt to to conduct remote tribunal hearings very early in the piece from about. 1998, I think we first had the remote tribunal hearings. So we, so they didn't have the expense of flying us to Port Hedland or Christmas Island. And you can learn to do that, but it's difficult. But you could learn to do that with a base of having done it in person before. I don't think you could start doing it by video. Yeah, no, well, I, I think when it comes to matters that legal matters, court proceedings and so forth, I, I find it very difficult to see how that can happen, although it is adopted across... There's some jobs you can't do remotely. You can't be a remote bus driver. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, not yet anyway. Well, maybe if Elon Musk has his way. <laughs> I don't think there's any particular social harm here, but what it does do, Jack, is, is, is actually diminish the sort of hub of our cities. And you've got people there who have invested in businesses that... that might be your local cafe or your local sandwich bar or, or a pub or a restaurant who have basically chosen to locate themselves and paid high rental or lease for the for the premises in the CBD now to see their traffic is almost gone. So yeah, there'll be going to be a huge knock-on effect in terms of commercial commercial real estate in our, in our on, major cities. On the other hand, there are people who say, well, I can't afford to open a, a, a coffee shop in the CBD, so I'll open one in my neighbourhood huh? in, in North Fitzroy or somewhere, and, and they've been going really well because people have been wanting to get out of the house and go there and do it. Now, it also it, it works better for the well-off. I've got to tell you, I mean, it works better for the people who can dedicate a room in the house to be the home office and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't work very well in Hong Kong where you've got two lawyers with two kids and a helper living in 900 square feet and everyone's working around the same dining room table trying to do Zoom calls. And I occasionally watch from Telegram, I'm just sort of amused by this stuff, but there's a sort of New York rental Sites where people walk around saying you've got a one bedroom and mm. and it'll cost you three three grand US a month for a one bedroom with a tiny little kitchen, and even smaller bathroom, and 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 essentially it's like a studio. Mm. And 
And I just look at that and go, how could you live like that during a lockdown, for example? We get to lockdown shortly, but how could you live like that during the pandemic? And, of course, New York City was hit very badly by the pandemic. And, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's just things you would, you'd be screaming to get, jump and uh, jump on the train and uh, jump on the subway and, and get into an office where you could talk with people and move around a bit. Yeah, well, they, they closed restaurants here for a day. And then they realised people couldn't feed themselves without restaurants. <laughs> they very often don't have well, kitchens, etc. at home to do so. Government is imperfect, Jack. And But Australian Retailers Association New South Wales Small Business Commissioner, Chris Lamont, said, who was bemoaning and urging, bemoaning the work-from-home culture and, and now... And, and urging people to go back to their offices. And I love this comment, Jack, and we'll tear it apart in a minute. If government, he said, can do something really constructive for Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, it is to put a mandate on public service returning to work. And, look, it's a reasonable comment on its own, but it's like, what is the government going to do about it? It's just like we've got a, we've got a social phenomenon here driven in the sort of wake of the pandemic, and what is the government going to do about it? Now, mm. they do have some control. Well, they don't have a lot of control over the public service in terms of how they work and uh, and what they're working on. Uh, well, they want what they're working on, but, but in terms of how they work and where and so forth, uh, governments really don't have any control over this. They have a seat at the table to argue about it, but that's about all. Yeah. That's right. Why I highlighted that quote is just because it's one of those things, and Chris Lamont, I don't know at all, but often the people who might be associated with Australian Retailers Association or business groups and so forth are always talking about smaller government. Yeah. And then whenever something that comes along that upsets them, they're saying, what is the government going to do about it? I think the bigger quote from there, I might have cut that bit out, but he did acknowledge that he was normally calling for smaller government. You just can't have five bob each way. Well, you can. Well, you, in this sense, you can, on, you can Tuesday next week. We'll go through the Melbourne Cup stuff shortly. We better get on. A Labor-Greens coalition, good idea, Jack, because uh, the Greens... In, in Victoria, at least, it would be welcoming the old, uh, the remnants of the old socialist left back into the party. That's who the Greens... Well, yes, that, this came from Shane Rattenbury and it was published in The Australian, but Labor would be looking at this going, what, what are we doing now? This just doesn't... No one's even spoken to us about this. But uh, the Greens are saying, no, oh, look, for, uh, for a few, for a few uh, pieces of silver, we'd, we'd join into a coalition with you. Well, for a ministerial job and a big white taxi driving, yeah. the, uh, I'll sign up. Yeah. <laughs> and look, we promise to behave ourselves, and they never ever do, of course, yeah. over that rental freeze business, which is just an entirely workable, unworkable sort of nonsense that they put together that somehow Anthony Albanese or the housing minister could just, just put, a, put a rent freeze through when it's all under state and territory jurisdiction. Just absolutely... Uh, just absolutely startled me. But there they were. There they were screaming, jumping up and down. They're not good friends to have. Then nor, were, nor was that part of the socialists left in the old Victorian Labor Party. Well, right? Yeah, it really was. There was a sort of view in the commentariat going back perhaps 15, 20 years ago that the, and I guess strong around the 2010 election and, and minority government, that the Greens and Labor were basically cut from the same cloth. But what has actually happened is that, as you say, that the harder SL wing of the of the Labor Party 
has been stripped bare and basically wandered across the aisle to, to join the Greens, yeah, a little bit, New South Wales. A little bit different in, in, in New South Wales. It was the, uh, the old communists who formed the basis of the Greens there, yeah. I just had this awful remembrance of that that wedding ceremony where Swanee and Julia Gillard sat there with Bob Brown and I can't think who else, all with their corsages of wattle on them. Yeah. I can't remember a worse moment in Labor, Australian Labor politics than that. It, the optics, as they say, was just awful. And, and, yeah. and someone smart in the party sort of said, we're not doing this. Yeah. If you want to sign an agreement, we'll do it over here in behind closed doors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was the Andrew Ollie lecture delivered by my good friend, Lee Sales, and she had some very sensible things to say, Jack. And I'll just read part of it. One is that some reporters prefer to be activists and crusaders rather than fact finders or straight reporters. They enjoy their heroic status among the tribes of social media or their subscribers. I'm not sure they can even identify their own bias. Others haven't had enough training to understand what independent journalism actually is or their organisation has an ideological bias and the reporter knows the way to get ahead is to toe the line, etc. It's well worth a look, listeners. It, it gets to that point that we were talking about before, how crucial straight up and down independent reporting is. Now people say, oh, you work at news. You know this because there's a big word that starts with O at the top of the page, yeah. opinion. Where straight reporters, and I know a lot of them, they're all very young guys, they, they just get on and do the job. They get on and do the job and they are encouraged to do that job and they are encouraged to do it and that means basically reporting as you see it. Part of the reasons for this is historical. Uh, I blame that movie, dreadful movie, All the President's Men, that missed the, um, gotcha. what, what actually happened during Watergate and the, or on the reporting of Watergate. The, the two reporters didn't bring down President Nixon. No. What brought down President Nixon was his own party turned against him. But it, it made reporting look like an exciting thing to do where you were an activist and changed the world. And that changed journalism in the Western world forever because it started to attract lots and lots of almost all university graduates to the job. Before that reporting, being a newspaper reporter, had been a largely working class pursuit and people were trained to report. They weren't looking to be there to change They were close. That's yeah. the job. Yeah. Journalis journalism is chronicling. And, and that means you what, what you hear, you write down. Right? Yeah. And, Who, and without, what, when, where, how? And, and without any institutional bias. And let the editor sort it out at the end of the day and publish and publish what's being reported. It's a fairly straightforward exercise. I agree with you, this sort of gotcha moment or the, the heroism of journalism. Is, and we do know that. Journalists are, particularly foreign correspondents, very brave, do incredibly brave things to get stories to people, including, and there have been, in my understanding, about 30 journalists killed in Gaza so far. So my old mate Steve Kinane wandering around trenches with, with a bulletproof jacket on and a helmet on, reporting from eastern Ukraine. It does require a great deal of bravery, but there's also courage in just reporting it as you see it. Anyway, your old pal Lee Sales did uh, a sterling job with the Andrew Wiley lecture, I think, and, yeah, and I, I particularly liked it. Well worth reading. You, you'll particularly enjoy the story of her 
parking in Ita Buttero's car park at the Ultimo headquarters of the Itza Ripper. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that, that was her intro to the Andrew Welly speech, and it's a fabulous little vignette, I've got to tell you. I imagine, I've been ABC car park many times, uh, I imagine, and I can't, can't recall, but uh, I imagine Ida's car park's fairly strongly labelled. Yeah, oh, yes, it was. There's no doubt about that at all. Yeah. Oh, over the United States, uh, Trump, the Trump legal stuff is now is just a cascade. It's almost important. It's almost impossible to tell which one's going on at the moment. What we have at the moment is the New York civil matter, where a judge has already found Donald Trump to have behaved fraudulently in overvaluing his asset, and now what is being considered is the penalty. And that involves putting the Trump kids in the box. And on reports this morning, Donald Trump Jr. gave evidence at the moment. It was of the I don't recall type, unsurprisingly. He was he seemed pretty calm and cool about it all and says basically whenever they were preparing financial reports, the accountants did it and he just signed off on it. Probably not bad, not bad evidence to give at the moment. There was a rather funny comment made that whenever it came to... Uh, the Trump Corporation's finances, Junior would have a look at it and pass it over to Ivanka for analysis. And then if they decided they were going to send a reply, Eric uh, Trump would lick the stamp. And that was basically his role. He's due, I think, tomorrow, if early next week. And then, of course, the big man himself gets into the box. That should be uh, worth the price of admission. Yeah. Uh, I made a made of mine put this, an American man of mine put it this way. Just imagine you're living in a swing state, maybe Wisconsin. So you're a factory worker from Kenosha or Green Bay. You voted Trump, you and your wife both voted Trump in 2016. You voted Trump in 2020 and your wife did. And you're watching the news and this comes on and your wife says, look, this judge in New York's discovered that Donald Trump told some lies and he big noted himself and he exaggerated how much money he had so he could get a loan. And the husband's going to turn around and say, it's amazing what the things they find out these days. Who'd have ever thought that could have happened? I'm guilty of that. They're now determining the penalty. And the penalty may be that he's unable to conduct business in the state of New York. Yeah, and that, it, this uh, will get hosed out on appeal, I can assure you of that, because the state of New York, the senior parts of the judiciary in New York, want deals to be able to be made in New York, and this would make deals nearly impossible if you had this sort of stuff going on. I just don't think there's a political, particularly the New York case, there's just not a political cost for him to pay. Oh, well, there may not be a political cost, but uh, 20 million bucks can be a bit of a problem. Uh, only if it holds on appeal. Uh, well, there is But, but, also- but in, the, in the meantime, for people like you and I who follow politics, it's immensely entertaining. Oh, huge yeah. entertainment. And even more entertaining, Jack, the, on Wednesday, the Supreme Court will take up an entirely different, this is US SCOTUS, will take up an entirely different Trump-related case, the weighty over whether a T-shirt maker can get a trademark for, mocking, for a mocking reference to Trump's genitalia too small. And, and that has actually gone all the way to the US Supreme Court, which is even funnier.
It is. I'm not sure these two things related, but I think it was one of the New York Magazine ed- editors who described him as a short-fingered Bulgarian. Hey, that those, may have nothing to do with it. You know, he, has, he, has, he does have those very small hands and he just doesn't like to be... The other thing that's, that's arisen for the Trump for the Trump campaign is, I think, it's certainly a, a case will now go to trial or, or has gone to trial in Colorado where they're seeking to have him struck from the ballot under the 14th Amendment. Yeah, so that's going to trial in Colorado. I think there are others pending in Michigan and Minnesota and possibly one other state, and they're seeking to have him taken off the ballot. I don't like that at all. I want to see him. I want to see him whopped at the ballot box. Uh, that won't survive any judicial review either. So. Interesting. A couple of interesting things that have occurred there, Jack. That a Quinnipiac poll has got Bobby Kennedy Jr., that horrendous human being, and. And you've got Biden at 39 and Trump at 34, I think, from it might have been 36. I just don't have the figures in front of me. So it's fairly clear that if Bobby does run as a sort of, I mean, he won't go on the ballot, but as a sort of mail-in candidate, he might be really cutting away at the Republican vote. Hard to know who he's going to be cutting away at. Oh, it seems pretty, pretty straightforward on this poll, mate, that it will be that basically there is a sort of an anti-Trump group within the Republican Party who just won't vote for him and they will vote instead for Kennedy. Um, well, that's not how I read it. 36-39, Trump's close enough to win and, and Kennedy's got 20%, so that you, it's coming from both sides. Yeah, I think there's a lot to uh, lot to go there, not least of all a number of felony a number of felony charges that uh, Donald has to account for. Um, Can I just say, my view of that is they help him politically. All of this stuff that's in court, apart from the Florida case, is going to help him politically. It's not going to harm him at all in terms of votes. It's going to help him. And I think this is a a great act of self-harm, political self-harm, by the Democrats and their friends in the prosecution service. Yeah, but that's that's to suggest that the indictments that he's faced are politically motivated, and they're not. There's no evidence to suggest that they are politically motivated. That's not what There has to be a consequence for what took place on January 6th. There has to be a consequence for the for the conspiracy that he engaged in to create a false suit of, of electors to basically overturn the election. You love democracy. This guy was trying to rape it. Most American voters do think it's political already, and that's going to get worse. As I say, my view, and, I, and it's just an opinion, is that I think it's an act of political self-harm by the Democrats. Yeah, but that's to suggest that this is a conspiracy to get Donald Trump. That and that is not the case. That's what most Americans yeah. are suggesting. I think a healthy minority of Democrats believe that's what's going on. It's, it, these things are not determined by a show of hands, Jack. Basically, you have the, got the, this the, guy the behaving in a criminal way who sought to who sought to overturn the legitimate election of Joe Biden. Right? and do it in a conspiratorial way. And if you don't believe me, you just watch the people dropping off the RICO conviction in Georgia. And what I'm prepared to give evidence against him. And and what I'm saying is there's going to be a political cost to pay for this and the Democrats will pay. Well, you thought he wasn't going to get charged and then he was in four separate indictments. I thought the Democrats were smarter than this. But that's, again, you're actually saying that the Democrats have conspired with this when you've got a Department of Justice who've done the one, two federal cases. You've got uh, a Fulton County prosecutor doing the one in Georgia. And one of them results to him just handing out 
top secret information uh, at the drop of a hat. The Department of Justice is part of the executive. None of this happens without presidential approval. Well, we know enough about that process to know that Biden, you get on and do what you got to do. I, I just can't accept that anyone could look at what happened in January 6th, the lies that this bloke told, the, the conspiracies, that he, the criminality that he engaged in to overturn an election. And this is very clear and understood by a whole lot of people and will be understood by a whole lot of people more as these processes, as these indictments. That's all right. We're going to find out just how venal Donald Trump is. And that's when it all starts to change for him. All right, vaccine mandates. New York State Supreme Court ordered all New York City employees who were fired not being vaccinated for not being vaccinated to be reinstated with back pay. Oh, jeez, wouldn't you like to to work alongside with a copper who refused to get him? Seriously. This will play out in the next six to 12 months around the US, I think. Well... Tell me how. We, took, we talked about because, uh, all, we had an Adelaide Crows foot, uh, uh, a woman's footballer who was an intensive care nurse who said, I don't want to get vaccinated. What do you think? She's going to wander, we're just going to let her wander around the ICU? I think the courts will, are going to increasingly find that the mandates are not that's, this sort, country, that's mate. Maybe not in Australia, but I think in the US they are. Numerous cases, most of them undertaken by, shall we say, scurrilous lawyers on the make who have looked at vaccine mandates. One famous case for an ambulance driver. There have been others, and one by one, comprehensively not. Right, moving on to Canada very briefly. Now, let's move on to the COVID inquiry, Jack, in the United Kingdom. And Boris Johnson has been getting an absolute kicking from his uh, closest advisers, Jack. Mr. Jo- it includes, this is from Dom Cummings and others, Mr. Johnson, Boris Johnson believed COVID was a hoax and path- no worse than swine flu and that it was nature's way of dealing with the elderly. Woo-hoo. Number 10 staff had derided the dithering Johnson as the trolley called him the trolley, as he changed direction so often. Mr. Johnson took the pretty insane decision to go on holiday in February 2020, one month before lockdown. There was no plan for how to protect vulnerable people from the virus. Johnson admitted that there had been a total, totally disgusting orgy of narcissism by a government that should be solving a national crisis. That's a direct quote. Mr. Cummings said in a message that he wanted to personally handcuff the UK's most powerful female Mandarin, as he called her a C-word. In November 2020, Mr Cummings blocked Mr Johnson on WhatsApp after the then PM pleaded for briefings against his government to stop. 100,000 people died of COVID in the UK, Jack. Yeah, hell hath no fury like a spad scorned. They're called spads in the UK, special advisors, ministerial staff, as we call them in Australia. And in Australia, they wouldn't be giving evidence in an inquiry like this and there's a reason for that is that you need uh, to be able to have disagreement even very robust and virulent disagreement between ministers and their staff and not have it subject to this sort of inquiry. It goes on to say that the PM was obsessed with the idea that older people should be allowed to catch the virus and accept their fate. If you you watch a fair bit of this... Logan's run. and, And I have... A lot of the anger from, I think, we can't remember the other fellow's name, and Dominic Cummins, was because from inside the the number 10 Downing Street that they weren't winning the battle, that Johnson kept going back 
to his cabinet colleagues and making cabinet decisions rather than following the advice of his special advisers. And they are very unhappy about that, and they were at the time. No, they could be, but... And to be honest, you and I are both approvers of cabinet, cabinet government, so we would be on Boris's side. And well, yeah, but the, the thing about government, Jack, is consistency. This guy's just all over the shop. Yeah. Just well, all over the shop. We'll wait till we see how it pans out. But, yeah, um, but, well, he will but, give, but, but, as, give as, under as, oath. So. As, as a matter of principle, the Australian way of not having ministerial advisers doing, giving evidence like this is a better idea in my view. Yes, well, Johnson will give evidence under oath, which will almost, which will definitely be worth the price of admission. I see he got a job working for what is it, GB News? It's just just about his level, actually. All right, well, I just want to go back to Canada now because Canada, the great, the great Green Justin Trudeau Prime Minister administration, has plan has now announced plans to reduce the financial impact of his carbon tax temporarily removing the tax from home heating oil and boosting rebates for rural residents. Trudeau made the announcement Thursday afternoon with the members of his Atlantic caucus standing behind him. Home heating oil will be exempt from the carbon tax for the next three years across the country. Currently, rural residents get a 10% boost to the carbon tax rebate payments that will climb to 20% that year. This is all because the, the, the figures are looking very poor for Prime Minister Trudeau. Well, in the same time, Jack, we've got the Labor treasurer in this country coming forward and uh, and, and saying that basically you need they need to do more policy work in order to get to uh, <coughs> in order to get in, in order to hit their uh, zero emissions target. So we're just um, at an end to the political cycle, aren't we? Inevitably, what happens is that the popularity of net zero diminishes quickly when people's power bills and, and costs start going up. And, and this is a story from the Wall Street Journal. It's appearing in this, and it's just got the wonderful headline, Trump Jr., I have no understanding of accountancy, which is pretty funny. But that's, that's actually pretty, pretty standard is for, school? Uh, yeah, for uh, property develop, poor property developers to, uh, to say. I don't know nothing about this at all. Yeah. All right. Uh, presumably they can afford some reasonable lawyers to tell him that. Look, yeah. Uh, well, I don't think he's. I don't think he's. When he says he has no understanding of accountancy, I don't think it's an act. I don't think he's acting under advice. Put it that way. He's a very strange unit. All right. Judges, Jack. Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Judge James Ho, this is in the States, of course, doubled down on his refusal to hire clerks from certain elite law schools, saying the cancel culture he's witnessed on campuses is antithetical to America. The real problem, and I'm quoting again, with the Academy is not disruption, but discrimination. He said, rampant discrimination against mainstream views held by millions of Americans but disfavoured by cultural elites. Good Lord. What's he looking for a gig at the Aussie Spectator? But disfavoured by the cultural elites who control the national discourse. Oh, my Lord. The important thing he said was, too many judges are motivated by personal achievement, social climbing and cowering to public dissent as opposed to public service. If your whole life's purpose is to wear black robes, then maybe you shouldn't. And and I think that's a very good point. People who want to be, if you want to be a judge, if you want to be a politician, but you can't be both. 
Yeah, that's fair enough. But he's being a politician with all that nonsense. <laughs> just, just going back, circling back a moment to cancel culture. Cancel culture is going to die, and I can tell you why. Because one thing that the Israel-Gaza thing has caused is that the cancel culture doesn't just apply to part of the population. It's playing right across the board. And the people who are very keen on cancel culture are now suffering the consequence of it at Harvard and Penn State and Stanford and all those sort of places. And they are very keen now to wind it back, and they will. Well, cancel culture is just a sort of lurid term, but basically it is we want to stop anybody we don't agree with. And it comes from the left and it comes from the right. And, and, and that's what's happening on now. People are, are having job offers taken away from them because of their statements on Israel and Gaza. People, uh, donors are pulling funds from uh, the, of these universities and now issuing statements saying, no, that, that we're going to stop that. Yeah, you're drawing a fairly long bow. <laughs> if you think that if you're looking at if you're looking at social consequences in the US of of the Hamas attacks and the uh, Israeli response, I just don't see that happening at all. But look, <clears throat> I think it's cute from a judge to uh, to talk about to talk about these things to talk about how judges should be apolitical while making a political statement. All right, on a sport, and it is racing season now. We will not get a chance to talk to you, listeners, before the Melbourne. But let's just kick it off. But we'll get we'll get on to that in a moment. Hong Kong wins the first Crocs Plate. What's going on there, Jack? It's just about the biggest win that a Hong Kong horse has pulled off. A cracking race, best best Cox Plate since about 1992. I placed it. Uh, the Hong Kong horse got up by a nostril. Yes, uh, I did see it. Well, look, I remember back in the days and making my lads' day, lads' mags days. We did a Melbourne Cup. We did a Melbourne Cup special. Where we were, where we were reporting from George Freeman's grave, and we got his Melbourne Cup tips. But you had to buy the magazine and have a look and find out what they were. So, what are your tips for the Melbourne Cup? I still like Gold Trip. I've been sticking with it, but I've been watching the videos of the favourite Vauban, who's really an Irish hurdler. He's won on the flat in the UK and France, in Ireland and France, but he's really a hurdler. But he looks the goods as well, so he'll start favourite and could well win. Found but he, but there's, 20, there's 24 in it and there's a couple of good yes. horses who are going to get in down the bottom end of the weights that are always a chance. All right, you might want to... These haven't come from George Freeman, from the grave of George Freeman, but they have come from a, a very good friend of mine who watches watches this stuff very closely. Listeners, the uh, not in any particular order, but if you're looking at trifectas and what have you, without a fight, Cleveland, Vorban, Solcom and Breakup is his recommendations. And uh, we'll be having a little bit of a lash on that next week. Jack, I'll be having a long lunch around the cup. There's also a little bit of a smoky vound. Claire ran a, a really strong run in the Mooney Valley Cup, and you might want to throw that win in it as well as Jack's. What was yours, Jack? Oh, I think Gold Trip can do it again, but uh, but I would I wouldn't I don't think Solcom can win. But the other ones in your list are all good chances, and uh, probably less of the overseas influence this year, Jack. And the VRC. Uh, no, we're, we're a, a good uh, Vorbins, an Irish horse. Uh, Gold Trip without a fight. They're all imported gallopers. They're brought into the country to run here, but they were well. The VRC is stringent on 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 the overseas this year. No visiting nags get into the country. That is unless they're past the most stringent health checks known in the world of horse racing. Means there are a few yeah. far fewer imports this yeah. year. Good thing that's a good thing, isn't it? There, 
there are two groups of overseas horses now. There are the ones who are brought in just to run in the cup. And then there are the, the wider group of horses that have been purchased and bought over here and run for maybe a year here before they run. Even testing the jockey's health stringently, Jack. Yeah. Uh, this is basically a, a way to respond to the acute embarrassment of having horses die in the Melbourne Cup in the race. Yeah. So, yes, the immediate impact of that is fewer international horses this year, which is probably a good thing. All right. The Rugby World Cup, the South Africans, as you and I predicted, although it wasn't a great piece of punditry, the, the Saffirs won it. Yeah, they got the win narrowly, and there was a red card, like about a 20 minute mark, and the New Zealand captain was sent off. Um, I'm never a fan of big matches being decided by red cards, yeah, but unfortunately for him, it, it looked a red to me. Was it? Yeah, you, you thought it was legit, but yeah, yeah it's, it's such a big call. Such a big game, such a big core. I, I don't know. They should do it like the state of origin. It just they can punch on as much as you like. Well, they, that was a state of origin from a few years ago, or state of origins from a few years ago, where they could just punch on and then just go back to playing five minutes later. Yeah, well, the, the, the New Zealand captain um, it was definitely the head. The hit was head high, and he didn't hinge at the at the waist. Didn't bend at the hips at all. So that's. That's a red card. I, did, I did see him interviewed saying that he would have to live with this for the rest of his life, Jack. Sounds awful. Well, that's New Zealand for you, isn't it? Eddie Jones, Jack. He's not living with for, the, for a lifetime. He's moving on. Yeah, he is. What I do they do? What, what can, do they do? I'm, you can I'm, see why they did it. Eddie's got a history of giving teams a sugar hit in the short term and they thought oh. they could get one out of him. It just didn't work. But... And he's got to go because their problems are much deeper than the coach. They've got to really start again. All right. Yes, that would be one of the more predictable pieces of sports news. Eddie Jones in no longer coaching the Wallet. And it would be unwise to put all of the ARU's problems at, at his feet. Oh, no, it's, you, that's, this is a top-to-bottom job, a top-to-bottom oh, rebuild. Yeah. Well, the whole board should go. I'll Start again. Oh, the whole board should Phil go. Moore, who's the CEO, said, well, what are you going to do? He goes, oh, look, maybe we'll have a, a schools cup where where Joey's will, will play Kings. And you go, what is going on? Not an answer. That's not an answer at all. No, they've got to look at, got to look at the NFL, the successful organisations yep. in the country, and say, how are they going to, well, what are they doing differently to us, and replicate it. Yeah. I agree. The Cricket World Cup, Jack, has been uh, fantastic. Some fantastic cricket being played at the moment and none better than the South Africans at the moment won the Rugby World Cup. May well be on their way to a World Cup final. They're blasting sixes at a phenomenal rate. They've broken their own records and broken the tournament records for number of sixes hit by one side. Made mincemeat of New Zealand last night. In Australia, of course, and had, I think, just the one lapse, and I'm thinking it's against one of the minnows, but I'm, uh, it may well have been Afghanistan. I'm not quite sure. Australia in the top four, they play England. Oh, it might be tonight, Jeff. But that's their next game against England. <laughs> if we want some amusement, if we're ever looking for some amusement, let's have a look at England, who are basically they've got eight World Cup champions in the squad, and they've won one game. Yeah. And been- they're going very ordinary indeed. The uh, Jim Maxwell covered himself with glory last night. Uh, a mate sent this through me to me. Jim Maxwell, you know, the ABC commentator. Yes. He's on Twitter and he was commentating, throwing a bit of commentary in on the South African in- innings. And uh, 
with, I, I suspect, a little bit of help from autocorrect to cop growing. Yes, look, he is. It's part of the reason for for having a success so, so far in this tournament. I think he's got 400s from five innings. So it might be uh, five I watched, had a metamate for drink last night and watched about 45 minutes of it and he was just plastering them everywhere. Yeah. You know. Black black caps are probably one or two bowlers down and one or two batters down but with injury. But India still look the, the best side in it. But uh, look, one of, the, one of the good things about this tournament is that the minnows have actually had their days out. And Afghanistan of the Afghanistan and Pakistan, if New Zealand drop off particularly, which looks likely, it, it, it may be between Afghanistan and Pakistan, who are not a minnow, but to see who takes that fourth spot, I'd expect Australia to hit the, uh, hit the finals, India, South Africa, and as to the fourth side, well, we just don't quite know yet. And I might be being a little bit premature with the Australia prediction, but they're playing pretty good cricket at the moment. Yeah, it still looks like India and, and South Africa to me. South Africa, I saw them play it here a year ago, and they were terrible. And in all forms of cricket, but especially test cricket, they were just a very ordinary unit. And now they've got, in their ODI squad, they've got fantastic hitters and a very good bowling attack with some good slow bowling options as well. Look very good. So they might do the double with the uh, Rugby and Cricket World Cups. You've got a mention here of the Collingwood Collingwood Cup. Yeah, I've been watching. Been watching a beer at the Yorkshire Stingo for life. Watching a couple of interviews with him, he's changed the way that things that people have gone about things a little bit. And one that struck me was quite interesting. I think it was Luke Darcy interviewing, and he said, "So, what was the first thing that you changed when you started training them for pre-season?" He says, "Well." The first thing was we'd be out in Gosh's paddock doing match practice sort of stuff and everybody who made a mistake used to drop to the ground and do 20 push-ups. He said, we had the biggest arms of any team in the in the comp. <laughs> so the first thing I said was, do that. If you make a mistake, just keep going. Go and get the ball again, but don't punish yourself. Such a, this is the anti-Barassi approach, isn't it? This is a, such a... Oh, a, yeah. That sort of coaching has, has long subsided from football. Now, you don't see blokes, blokes get dragged. You might see it once or twice a season for a stuck or put a discipline act on the field. It's, it's more... Don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, we, we accept that you'll make mistakes. We just don't want you to make too many. But once you've made one, don't, be, don't crush yourself about it. Just get on and get the footy. Yeah, and, and they, they went on to, in the game against Carlton, where Braden Maynard kicked out and almost missed the ball, and it yeah, fell into a guy's hands, who promptly kicked the goal. And the TV camera crossed to Craig McRae. He coaches from the sidelines, in the, in, the, in the little compound there at the sidelines, and he was laughing about it. In fact, they were all laughing about it, that it was such a horrendous error. That's all you could really do about it was laugh. Where are you going to turn over? Yeah. You just know that you're going to, have, you're going to make a skill error. Where coaches will get set is is where the effort's lacking, where the pressure's lacking. Yeah, and this was funny because Maynard's a beautiful kick, and the yeah, fact that he missed the kick. ball. You know. But every hundred kicks he's making, he's going he's to he's make a mess of one or two. Yeah. Even the best kicks are going to be like that. So you, you, you know that this is a game full of mistakes, and it's just how you respond to them that, that gets you there. Yes. Uh, and that's part of the really good coaches these days. I listened to a bit of a tape of uh, Rocket Eden, who was a fire and brimstone coach, probably the last of the fire and brimstone coaches. He was and, another uh, one killer group. Well, he was the he was the latter day Alan Killer group, and uh, and uh, he was absolutely screaming in the box, absolutely screaming, and uh, had all the assistants around him, of course, and they're saying, "Rocket, 
rocket. Keep it down, mate. We can't hear ourselves thinking. So to, to have that sort of really strong emotional response, you just don't do anybody any good. No one makes good decisions like that. And, and, and if you're a young player, 2021, 20, 2022, and you've got someone just yelling at you all the time, how are you going to respond to that? Generally speaking, people are just going to withdraw. People shrink. Yeah. 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 All right, now, you have missed out on Ange, of course, and, and beloved Ange Postacoglu, currently Tottenham on top of the table with uh, eight wins and two draws from their ten games. Jack, he just hasn't put a foot wrong. A friend who's involved in the football profession around the world and a Tottenham fan was a, a little bit dubious about Ange taking the job, but he's absolutely on the Ange bandwagon these days. And he says he's actually terrifying people in the Premier League because everybody had this way that you had to build a team up. You had to go out and recruit people and do all that sort of stuff. Spend a lot of money. Mm. And he said he's taken Tottenham to the top without doing any of that. Well, so they, lo- they lost England's best player, they lost the yeah. best player in, in England or in the national side, gone, so, gone to play with Bayern Munich. So, so he's writing, rewriting the, the manual, if you like, for Premier League football. Yeah, uh, it was a wonderful little interview with him afterwards and, and they were talking about how the Tottenham fans are just, just absolutely celebrating and he goes, look, I... And, and they talked about a song that was playing in the changing rooms and he goes, look, I... Mainly because of the players' choices, the music choices. I don't go into the dressing rooms very often. But and he, he said, he, look... He was, they were trying to get him to say, put the lid on it, all that sort of stuff. And he says, no, nah, don't put a lid on it. One of the things football clubs are here for is to give people hope and dreams. And if Tottenham fans have got hopes and dreams, that's a great thing. Oh, he's, yeah, that's what he said. It's more like a nightclub around here at the moment. He goes, it doesn't worry me. He's just, he's, he said, whatever works for people, yeah. you know. It's a beautiful approach. Arsenal coming second. Man City, a very good side. They've had the eight wins, but two losses. Their third, Liverpool, Aston Villa, probably Brighton, and the side that are going very well. And we must point this out. Chelsea 11th, and they are just going nowhere. And with, I think, two of the three new arrivals in the Premier League looking like in early days that, that they will be relegated again. All right, Jack, take us out. What are we going with? It's a, it's a, it's a week know, of racing. What's going know, on there? I don't know whether you saw this, but the Governor General, Mrs. Governor General, was doing a little song. Oh, yes, she um, does. Yeah. Uh, again, yesterday, I think it was for Diwali. And Rowan Connolly, the former Melbourne Age reporter, impeccable progressive credentials, all that sort of stuff. I guess quote from his tweet, Oh God, not again. Seriously, is there really, all caps, no one game enough to tell her. Okay, then I'll have a go. And from here on, it's all caps. Okay, Linda, you can't sing. And every song you will add on these occasions is not only exquisitely awful, but sounds like a bloody outtake from an episode of Play School. Uh, Rowan was swinging for the fences, and I think he's absolutely right. Someone should tell her. Yeah. Cup week coming up, and the the Victoria Racing Club has issued new dress guidelines for Flemington, for the members area. and the, No shoes, no shirt, no service? No. Chaps have to wear a jacket and tie, but they're allowed to wear shorts, um, tailored shorts, <laughs> knee-length shorts. Oh, dear. And, the old Bermuda and, socks yeah, and, and the long no, socks, and, I should and, say. And this follows on from uh, an alteration they made in 2018 when they realised that the legal and financial services industries were so bad that chaps 
could no longer afford to wear socks with a suit, so they allowed them to come without socks. I just didn't think things were so bad they couldn't even afford long pants. Oh, look, I watched, I think it was last year, I watched the Victoria Derby Fashion Day, and, of course, they had the men's fashion thing, and you got blokes there who, they're not models, they actually turn up dressed like this. They look like a bunch of pimps, racetrack pimps. And uh, take us out of course, uh, Alan Kohler and Ross Gitt, are they, are they at loggerheads, Jack? No, I think they should be following up this racetrack thing because this is a marker of how bad the economy is. If the financial services people can't even afford long pants, Alan Kohler and, and Ross Gittins, you should be on this. Ross Gittins, I want to tell you, Ross, I once read a comment and I think he's, I think he's a good he's a good economic correspondent, but, but I do remember him acknowledging that he doesn't own a television. You think, that's not something to be proud of. <laughs> You've got to have a television this day and age. Anyway, so that does take us out. We've had a very large program today. We've gone over time a little bit. That's mainly Jack's fault. But we'll be back <laughs> with you next week with more, with more. And hopefully you'll have heard our cup tips. And if they're bad, I'll blame the bloke who gave them to me. If they're good, I'll take the credit. Jack, you'll be watching the Melbourne Cup next week? Yes, I will. Comes on a little bit early here for my taste, but it's on. Yeah, I'll yeah. Well, enjoy that. And uh, listeners, thank you very much for your time, and we'll catch up with you next week. See ya.